Episode 49, A Civilized Bookcase. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 27, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Knowledge is power. At least, that's what early missionaries in Kansas were teaching Native American students. Join Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and me as we examine a bookcase constructed by children at the Delaware Indian Mission in Wyandotte County, Kansas. Built to house volumes of knowledge, this bookcase symbolized a much more tragic story. Did these missions improve the daily lives of Indian children? or intentionally wipe out their cultural heritage. Then, you couldn't escape it. We play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. This week, we connect White, a world-famous newspaper editor from Emporia, to Harry Houdini, the world-famous escape artist from Hungary. Or was he from Appleton, Wisconsin? You'll hear all about it. But first, a civilized bookcase. What you say? Good morning, Rebecca. Today we're going to talk about a bookcase made at the Delaware Indian Mission in Wyandotte, Kansas, and it was made in about the 1840s. Um, Native American pupils at the mission handcrafted this bookcase for a man named Reverend John Pratt. But before we get to Pratt, um, do you think you could sort of describe what the bookcase looks like? Yeah, it looks pretty simple. It's uh, kind of like a big rectangle standing on end, and it's uh, made out of cherry wood. It's got a glass front. The glass is wavy because it's old glass. And behind the glass is about three shelves for books. And really the only decorative thing about it is that on the top and the bottom, it's got some scroll-cut flourishes. Uh, very simple, which, you know, looks like something that a beginning carpentry class would have made. The bookcase represents a somewhat uh, tragic period in American history. Um, in the 1830s, the U.S. government began moving Indian tribes west of the Mississippi. Uh, why were they doing that? To make way for whites. That's the simple answer. Uh, our, the history of our country in the 1800s was one of westward movement. Um, we were out to colonize the continent, and we did a really good job of it. Pretty much by the end of the century, we had the whole continent. So um, the government knew that it needed to, well, it wanted to make way um, for white settlement by moving the tribes west. Another reason they gave was that they wanted to also protect the Indians from contact with whites. The government claimed that it, by isolating the Indians out west where there were very few whites or no whites were supposed to be, that it would have a chance of acclimating them to white culture. The Delaware, who are the focus of today's podcast, they're an interesting example of what happened to the tribes um, in the 19th century because they were an East Coast tribe. They were from around the... Delaware River. Right. Where this, I mean, that's, they do illustrate the point really well that they end up here in Kansas and they started out, you know, where Delaware yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And a series of treaties moves them west. I mean, they moved to a lot of different places until in the 1830s they ended up in Kansas. You know, theoretically, the last move. This was going to be Indian territory forever. 
How do Indian missions fit into the forced into the forced migration of these tribes? These were religious-based missions, uh, and they were out to educate or acculturate the Indian. Um, so the missions were schools uh, in a lot of, uh, yeah, in a very broad sense, they were schools. Half of the mission curriculum was devoted to reading and writing and arithmetic, like a traditional American school would be. And the other half was uh, what they called manual labor. So that would be, again, as part of that mission to turn them into good Americans, they're going to learn how to farm because Indians were nomadic. Many of the tribes were nomadic, and that is not what a good American does. A good American settles down and has a farm and a home. Uh, so they wanted them to learn how to farm. They wanted the, the girls to learn how to housekeep and sew and cook in the American style. Uh, and the boys then would learn a trade like blacksmithing or carpentry and especially farming because that was the American yoga. Yeoman, yeoman farmer ideal. Now, the interesting thing about the Delaware, though, because they had had contact with white Europeans for so long, I mean, you know, since they're an East Coast tribe, they've known about the Europeans forever. Um, they, a lot of the Delaware were basically acculturated. A lot of them weren't, too. A lot of them were still nomadic. But you have this, these factions within the tribe where you've got these people who are living like whites, essentially. They're wearing white clothing. They have white haircuts. They speak English. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, Delaware who, who actually can't speak any English at all, uh, can't read or write, uh, are living in native, uh, native houses, uh, wearing native clothes, uh, which just horrified the missionaries who were out to make them look like the rest of us. And uh, it's interesting to read some of the stories, too, about especially this mission, the Delaware Baptist Mission, where um, one of the teachers wrote that a mother brought in two children to um, enroll them in the school, and she promptly pulled them and left when she saw that the teacher was going to cut their hair. Uh, so it would be boys and girls both had long hair. Boys mm -hmm. wore earrings. You know, horrors. Can you imagine how the missionaries reacted when they saw that? And that, you know, that was uncivilized. And a big part of the mission curriculum was religion, too, because religion is another uh, way of civilizing a, a people if you're if you have that 19th century missionary perspective. So there's a lot of religious instruction going on, too. Uh, one of the things I think is so interesting about a lot of these missionaries in Kansas, uh, especially the Baptist missionaries, is that they had printing presses at these missions, and, you, and they were teaching the boys printing. You would think that they would print religious texts in the English language, and they did some of that, but by and large, what these missionaries did was they set out to develop a phonetic alphabet in the Indians' own language and print it. So uh, it's really interesting to consider that these missionaries, on the one hand, they were supposed to civilize and Americanize the Indians, but on the other hand, they're giving them their own language in a written form, and they're teaching them in their own language, mm -hmm. uh, which makes me think that they weren't all bad. The missionaries weren't all bad. Mm -hmm. As I said earlier, this bookcase was made for a man named Reverend John Pratt. Uh, who was Pratt, and why were Indian children making bookcases for him? Well, he was uh, born in Massachusetts, went to the Andover Theological Seminary, a very famous school, um, and became a missionary for the Baptist Missionary Society, which sent him to Kansas um, in the 1830s. Uh, eventually, he made his way to this particular mission, the Delaware Baptist Mission, near present-day Kansas City. 
and he worked there for 20 years. 20 years at the a, same mission for 20 years. At the same years. mission for 20 years, yes. And as I said, printing tracks in their language. Uh, he had a very close relationship with these people. He worked as their missionary for a almost 20 years and then he became their Indian agent and uh, people who know what life was like in Indian territory it was chaotic there was a lot of money pouring in from the federal government to settle these debts that when they took the Indians lands away from them they would pay them essentially a nominal amount for the acreage all that money was coming in in annuity payments uh, an Indian agent could be extremely corrupt and siphon off a lot of that money uh, I like to think that Pratt, when he became Indian agent, because he had this missionary perspective, he was really uh, he really tried to do what was best for those people. One of his own sons married a Delaware woman, mm -hmm. so essentially his family married into the tribe, and he had a real vested interest um, in helping them out. Didn't he later w become sort of an advocate at, in Washington, D.C. for the Delaware? He did. Yeah, he went to, um, and because in his role as Indian agent, too, he was corresponding with the Bureau of Indian Affairs a lot, and he really tried to get things for them. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs would hold on to money for a long time or not send money or supplies at all. And the Indians really needed an advocate, and the Indian agent could do that, or the Indian agent could steal from them. Mm -hmm. And we have in our library collection a tremendous amount of papers from Reverend Pratt that are his correspondence with the government saying basically over and over again, you promised us this money, you promised us these blankets, these whatever, where are they? So he really tried hard to do what was right for them. Mm -hmm. This particular mission was built near a place called Grinter Crossing, which was near Wyandotte, Kansas. Would I find either of these place names on a map today? You would if you were looking at an 1840s or 50s map of Kansas. Because <laughs> neither Grinter Crossing nor Wyandotte, Kansas exist in those in it, or as those no, forms not today. as those forms today. That yeah, Kansas City, Kansas. You know, as we've dealt in previous podcasts, Kansas City is both in Missouri and in Kansas, uh, the present day city. So Kansas City, Kansas has just absorbed what were those original locations. Uh, the mission itself doesn't exist anymore, but Grinter Crossing, which is very where, near where it was located, uh, we have a state historic site there, Grinter Place. Grinter Crossing, the ferry, was ran by a man who was white, but he was married to a Delaware woman, which, and he operated this ferry in a trading post, which is why he was allowed to live here. Mm -hmm. So this mission, is, which was located in Wyandotte, which is present-day Kansas Wyandotte, City. Yeah, in Wyandotte County. Wyandotte County. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a confluence of all kinds of, I mean, the military road went through there. There was a river. That's where people were. That was like a point, a launching point for a lot of people, right? Sure, because the river is the major form or a major form of transportation in those days. Um, that's how you're going to get goods shipped down or upriver from Kansas City um, or any other major shipping place. There are no railroads in the land at this time. There's really only trails. You know, it's way pre-opening um, the territory for settlement. So this kind of thing, a trading post, it's important to locate your mission close to a place where you're going to be able to get supplies and goods. So at the same time as the Delaware Mission, there would have been the Potawatomi Mission located here near Topeka, St. Mary's, um, which is also not far from Topeka. It's a Catholic mission. Right. Um, Ka Many Mission and Council Grove. These were all roughly in the 1840s, right? They were pretty early. Mm -hmm. So some of these are fairly far west, right? Like Council mm -hmm. Grove. Um, 
So they were literally out here in the middle of nowhere before any of the country had been really opened up, right? Yes, very, it would have been very isolating for the missionaries and very strange for the tribes, too. Um, another thing to think about is these tribes, they've been moved repeatedly, a lot of the eastern ones, um, and their lands keep getting smaller uh, as they go further west. And so they're living next to, I mean, they're, they're crunching up against tribes that they may have never been next to before. And right to their west are these western or midwestern tribes who are getting angry because these eastern tribes are moving into what was their territory originally. It had to be a very tense time. It had to be. Because those eastern tribes, like you're talking about, they're already kind of enculturated, right? Like they already have picked up a lot of white, uh, some of them a lot are, of white man tendencies. Of, uh-huh. And they're it's a different like environment on the east coast. And all of a sudden you're crammed next to Plains Indians. Yeah, um, you don't know how to make a living out here. I mean, yeah, and it's interesting, too, that they're sending these missionaries out to show these tribes how to farm. The climate's quite different out here, and I can't imagine that Eastern missionaries, Pratt was from Massachusetts, would have a clue how to farm in a Plains climate. Uh, so, in a way, they were all destined to fail, I'm afraid. So, you have, like, these Eastern tribes these Great Plains tribes, and it's all got to be mitigated by shady um, Bureau of Indian Affairs people, Bureau agents, and missionaries Mm -hmm. that probably don't have any idea what it's like out here. And really complicating the factor is you have traders out here who are illegally selling the tribes alcohol. For the children, life at the Indian mission could be a little, well, brutal. How did the Delaware mission compare to the more... um, infamous, notorious Indian schools, places such as Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania was probably uh, one of the worst. How did, yeah. the ba- how did the Delaware Indian Mission compare to that? Uh, probably somewhat favorably. Uh, the problem with Carlisle was it was the first government, totally government-financed off-reservation boarding school. It was way off the reservations. It was in Pennsylvania. So you had tribes sending or f- being forced to send their children hundreds and sometimes even thousands of miles away uh, to a boarding school. You can imagine the loneliness and isolation they must have felt and such a strange thing. Their families are all gone. Everything's stripped from their way of life, their families, everything. Um, so when you think about that, we've got these mission reserve mission schools in Kansas that are on the tribes reservations um, the frustrating thing for the missionaries was that the attendance was always in flux because it was on the reservation um, if there was an outbreak of disease as there often was um, you know, and it would devastate these native populations. Um, the parents would come to the mission and take their kids out of school to protect them. And then you also have these stories of um, tribes kind of shopping around for mission for mission mission schools. It didn't matter to them what the denomination was, whether it was Catholic or Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist. Um, which school was the best funded? But at the time was important to them. Which would missionaries did they like, and which would take the best care of their kids? So um, if you look at it in that light. It, it gave the parents and the kids much more flexibility to ha- to have the missions here in Kansas than it would to send them way off the reservation like Carlisle. Uh, and Carlisle was very militaristic and um, rigid, regimented in its, um, its structure. The mission system was often, uh, like we talked about, uh, a little prone to corruption, um, and missionaries were sometimes uh, a little shady. 
Uh, what, what do you think Pratt was like? I think it would be tough for a missionary to be in it for the money. An Indian agent or a trader, yeah. Because um, the Indian, Indian agents are dealing with federal money. They are. The missions are dealing with... A combination of monies. They're, they're dealing with... Uh, they're dealing with some federal money, but it was usually pretty minimal. Um, they're mainly dealing with support from their own missions, mission societies. So, you know, the Baptist Mission Society gave a lion's share of the funding for the Baptist missions here in Kansas, and they were relying on donations. So they were never swimming in money. <laughs> never. And so you read these missionary letters, they're always begging their own relatives, please, can you send us a chamber pot <laughs> or whatever? You know, we don't have, they did not have any money. Um, the other thing that the thing that was going for the Delaware was they got all this money from the government for their land, and it was coming to the tribe in the form of these annuities. But the Delaware specified as a tribe that they wanted a certain portion of those annuities to be set aside for education. So that helped the mission schools here in Kansas a lot. They were getting many essentially tribal money um, to help fund these schools, but they were never well funded by any means. So here's Pratt with his own family, wife and, and children out here trying to survive too uh, he's he's running this mission farm they're trying to sell goods that the children make and sell pro farm products to keep the school running um, and it had to be a really tough life when you read letters that he and his wife wrote back home to their relatives too they're filled with religious fervor uh, in addition to the begging for you know basic necessities um, chamber pots yeah chamber pots or whatever um, so I really think that he was really trying to do the best he could for them. And when you think, too, that his own son married into the tribe, that's that's pretty, you know, unusual for a missionary. He, he really built lasting friendships among the tribe. Okay, my final question. Um, one of the most prominent features of the bookcase, and I think it's the most interesting, is the glass panes on them. Um, they appear to be almost weeping. Uh, weeping like crying almost. Um, is there a practical explanation for this phenomenon, or am I just looking too closely for a metaphor? I think you're looking really hard for a metaphor, and it's a great metaphor. <laughs> the weeping bookcase, yeah. the weeping Native American yeah. bookcase. It, yeah, it's it's more. It has more to do with early methods of glass manufacture. I like to think of this bookcase as, as really representing the best and the worst of the mission experience because on the one hand, it represents the Americanization of the Indians. You know, we're going to put them in these rooms and we're going to teach them how to read. But on the other hand, because knowledge is power, it also represents what the missionaries were trying to do for their pupils, which is to, you know, make them uh, have a way to uh, make a living in a white man's world, and that couldn't have been easy. All right, Rebecca, thanks for telling us about this bookcase that was made at the Delaware Indian Mission. You're welcome. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alawite. And joining me today is Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman, and Assistant Museum Director, Rebecca Martin. Good afternoon, ladies. Hello. Hello. Rebecca, um, who was our first victim uh, this week on Six Degrees of William Allen White? Who are we going to connect to White, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas? Well, this time we have a challenge from a listener. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We have a listener. <laughs> Yay. And her name's Carol. She lives in Appleton, Wisconsin, and she wrote, You should connect William Allen White to Houdini. He's another Appleton native, and he was born in Europe, but always referred to Appleton as his home in the interviews. Which is interesting. Of course, we're talking about Harry Houdini here, who was a, um, he kind of became renowned as sort of a magician, but more of an escape artist, I think. Um, and it's interesting that she says um, that Houdini always said that he's from Appleton because he wasn't born in Appleton. He was born in Hungary and he came here at a young age. Um, but he did later sort of always say that he was born in Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, his name, his, he was born Eric Wise in Hungary in 1874. Um, along with being an escape artist, he also really got into investigating the paranormal, paranormal and sort of debunking it. That was, uh, that was kind of his quest. And he died a sort of mysterious death as part of a water torture chamber stunt. Um, and Nikayla, I believe you have a solution, correct? That's right. One of our listeners, another listener. We have two. Yeah. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Uh, Kevin from Cedar Parks, Texas wrote, I don't know why I took on this challenge. It's after 11 p.m. and I've been working on this for two hours. I don't even live in Kansas, although my family roots run deep there. Do you get a sense of like almost addiction to mm-hmm. our, I don't know, yeah. to a, a bit of frantic, you know, yeah. quest? Poor well, Kevin. we're not going to encourage any kind of treatment for that. <laughs> Keep listening. Okay, so here's his solution. Number one, William Allen White wrote What's the Matter with Kansas in 1896, in which he fondly referenced a man named John Sherman. Number two, John Sherman served as Secretary of the Treasury and was friends with James A. Garfield. And he quotes here, at the 1888 Republican Convention, Garfield failed to win the presidential nomination for his friend John Sherman. Finally, on the 36th ballot, Garfield himself became the quote-unquote dark horse nominee. That is interesting, I think. He failed to win it for his buddy and then strangely ended up being the nominee. Mm, yes. Weird how politics yeah. works. <laughs> Number three, James A. Garfield was shot by Charles Guiteau on July 2nd, 1881, and died after a long, painful battle with infections brought on by his doctors poking and prodding the wound with unwashed hands and non-sterilized instruments. (laughs) Garfield died on September 19th, 11 weeks after being shot. Most modern physicians familiar with the case state that Garfield would have easily recovered from his wounds with medical care available even 20 years later. That is horrifying. That is yeah. horrifying. <laughs> Number four, Houdini makes a splash with his widely publicized escape from the Washington, D.C. jail that once held Charles Guiteau, the assassin of President James A. Garfield. So we have White to Sherman to Garfield to Guiteau to Houdini. Four degrees. Nice. Nicely and done, Kevin. Yes. yes. But it can be done better. Good well, try, Kevin. Fewer degrees. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I believe both of you ladies have a solution. Um, Nikayla, you want to go ahead and start yours? Because I think it will be a particular appeal to our original listener from Appleton. As we all know now, Houdini claimed Appleton, Wisconsin as his home. And those who've listened before know that also from Wisconsin, Appleton, Wisconsin was Edna Ferber, mm-hmm. who once interviewed Houdini. Um, she set out uh, purposefully to find him, and she looked for him like at his hotel and at the theater where he was performing, and she couldn't find him. And lo and behold, bumped into him at the drugstore across the street from the newspaper office. So they stood outside. She interviewed him, and while they were, she was interviewing him. He was leaning up against like a vending machine that had um, gum and chocolate in it. Yeah. And when the interview was over, 
he handed her the padlock from the vending machine and said, you might want to give this back to the, you might want to give this to the druggist because somebody's going to steal all his gum. And she had no idea that he was doing it. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. And as we know, Edna Ferber was good friends with William Allen White. Edna Ferber, popular novelist of her time. Right. She was good friends with William Allen White. So Uh, three degrees. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And Rebecca. Yeah. um, Well, I have learned when dealing with William Allen White to always go for Teddy Roosevelt (laughs) first. So um, A good policy. Yeah, always a good policy. (laughs) William Allen White, Teddy Roosevelt, BFF forever. (laughs) Roosevelt was on an ocean liner in the 19-teens with Houdini. Houdini and his wife were celebrating their 20th wedding anniversary. And Roosevelt saw Houdini perform and liked it so much that he invited him to meet his grandchildren. So there you Teddy go. Teddy Roosevelt invited Houdini uh, to, to meet, meet the his Roosevelt, gran- gran- yes, Roosevelt, Roosevelt grandchildren. That's so, pretty yeah. cool. So I guess that would be two degrees, right? Is that right? The Houdini, degree being the Houdini separation the between Roosevelt. the human or uh, I don't three know. Degrees, That's actually three always, degrees. Always oh, well. been a bit of a yeah. debate. Or <laughs> the actual degree? Is the degree the person or, or the, or the separation between. <laughs> between them? Yes, the synapses. That's uh, well, right. Yeah. <laughs> It's another way to get there. <laughs> All right. Well, um, both good solutions. And uh, Kevin, thanks for sending yours. And um, interestingly enough, you'll note that Kevin actually has communicated with us before about our podcast. Uh, a long time ago, we did Six Degrees of William Allen White to the uh, to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And Kevin provided the solution to that. He told us all about the um, the singer, our opera singer, I believe, Enrico Caruso, who ran from the city of San Francisco <laughs> clutching a picture of Roosevelt. Again, with the Roosevelt connection. Or never to come back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Kevin is one of our loyal listeners and uh, pretty good at the game here. Rebecca, would you like to submit the challenge for uh, the challenge for? The next episode? Sure. The next challenge will be to connect Nikola Tesla, the Serbian-born inventor, master of electricity, arch nemesis of Thomas Edison, and all-round magnetic personality to (laughs) William Allen White. (laughs) That's pretty good. Um, So if you have a connection between William Allen White and the great Nikola Tesla, particularly if it does not involve the 80s hairband that went by the same name, uh, send it to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 49, A Civilized Bookcase. If you would like to learn more about Pratt's bookcase, go to our website, kshs.org. Or you can actually see the bookcase on exhibit in the main gallery at the Kansas Museum of History. Come back in two weeks when curator Laura Van Orsdale and me take a look at a set of street signs crushed by a massive tornado that leveled the town of Greensburg, Kansas. Along with destroying 90% of the buildings, the twister ripped down every sign. With no signs and no landmarks, soon even longtime residents found it difficult to locate their old neighborhood. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. What you say mm, That you only meant well Well, cause you did mm, What you say mm, That it's all for the best
what you said.